0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to a flourishing, regenerative, functioning future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. My guest this week is someone that I found on LinkedIn, one of those social media that I don't fully understand, but people who are not part of my normal bubble have a tendency to impinge on my awareness in ways they don't in any of the other social media that I use. And so I came across Dr. John Collins when I was looking for someone to help me and us to get to grips with the ethics, particularly of AI, but of all digital and disruptive innovation. And John is the ethics and responsible innovation advisor for the machine intelligence garage, or garage, I guess, if you live in other parts of the world, and is on the Ethics Advisory Board at Digital Catapult, which I am awed to discover is something that the current UK government has set up to promote sane, intelligent, responsible, ethical innovation. So anyway, John seemed to me to be an extraordinarily good person to talk about things where I really have not enough knowledge even to know what questions to ask. And it definitely proved so. And in the long run, we ended up dragging the conversation into areas of my obsession, possibly areas of his obsession. We had so much fun just riffing off things that we take for granted that may or may not be true, certainly things that I take for granted that may or may not be true and that therefore the podcast takes for granted that may or may not be true. Yes, I do conflate myself with the podcast, although we do have rather a wonderful team, and I'm not conflating the rest of the team with the podcast, honestly. So here we go. It was a fun and inspiring conversation. People of the podcast, please welcome Dr. John Collins. So, Dr. John Collins, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you for making time in what seems an extremely busy schedule, and I found you on LinkedIn, which I don't really know how to work, but it's an amazing place to discover people who aren't part of my normal bubble. And we're stepping very much out of my normal bubble on this, which I think is a good thing. Stepping out of bubbles is always good. But it means that this is not an area where I have any kind of expertise. And so, with apologies to the listeners who do have expertise in this area, Likely to ask really stupid questions, so I apologise for that in advance, and welcome to the podcast.
1: There's no such thing as uh, unintelligent or daft questions. I mean, sometimes what we consider the simplest of questions, like when a child asks you why, are the most taxing, actually. Because more often than not, what they expose is what we don't know, and how we can't describe or explain you know, explanation is probably too strong a word, describe um, why something happens, why something is, why something isn't. So, you know, feel free to ask whatever questions. And uh, actually, the, um, the more searching they are.
0: All righty. I will give my inner five-year-old free reign. Thank you. Okay. So with that in mind, thank you. You're an ethics and responsible innovation advisor for the Machine Intelligence carriage, and on the Ethics Advisory Board. At Digital Capital, and I spent a little while exploring YouTube videos from both of these, so I have a slight edge on people. But can you explain what these two things are and then how you fit into it?
1: Well, the Digital Catapult is UK government's agency that brings together big business, small business, startups in the tech world um, to help them grow and scale And do things right. And as part of doing things right, they have created, five, six years ago, a group called the Machine Intelligence Garage. Uh, We're an advisory committee of, I don't know, there's about 15, 20 ethics and responsible innovation advisors, people who've worked in ethics or know about ethics or think they know about ethics, uh, to come together to help advise companies, but in particular startups, uh, about how really to embed ethical thinking and approaches from the very start of their startup, ideally from before they start up, and um, having deep conversations that explore how to better develop their products and processes so they're mindful of the rights of others and ethics and everything that goes into actually running a, what I would call a proper business in a responsible way and actually using tech responsibly. Brilliant. That's, um, it's, it's very important because most people don't even consider what they're doing before they start doing it. Yeah, I'm a scientist by training. We tend to do experiments.
0: Don't we just? Let's let's interrupt there for a moment and get a little bit of your background of how you then came to be invited to be an ethics advisor to business from a government. I have to say this is revealing my my great surprise that they actually get themselves together enough to do that. I'm quite impressed. I thought they were too busy playing musical chairs at the top, but they wanted proper ethics, or at least they were advised that that would be a good idea. How did you come in? At what stage did you come into this, and how did you come to be someone whose name was put forward or who snagged their attention?
1: I have a background in developing disruptive technologies, those technologies that actually change the shape of the world in some way, shape, or form, uh, financially, environmentally, or otherwise. And the first time I, I really started doing this, actually, I did a PhD in nuclear physics and semiconductor theory uh, that was funded by the Central Electricity Generating Board at the time. And um, electricity generation was nationalized in the UK and we had lots of nuclear power stations. And I was um, I did this thing called a CASE Award, which was a degree that's funded by industry, by the CEGB, as it was. Um, and it was to develop a personal dosimeter, which is a dose meter, for particular types of radiation that were very hard to detect in real time. In fact, impossible to detect in real time in terms of people being able to carry it around so that people working in the nuclear power industry didn't get exposed to radiation. that They didn't know about until a couple of weeks later when this film badge that they used to wear which used to fog up according to the amount of radiation that they'd uh, been exposed to, uh, was finally developed. And it was terrible. It used to it, it used to cost the CEGB about 3% of their yearly earnings um, in downtime and loss of people being able to work, sometimes ever again. Sometimes people would find, wow, I've had a dose that's huge. Uh, Where did it come from? No idea. So I developed this little sensor that was portable, that worked in real time to detect radiation, this particular radiation. And it saved the CEGB about 1% uh, of their annual.
0: And presumably also it meant that they could find out where, where the leaks were. Exactly. In real time, rather than waiting two weeks and trying to track back where some guy had been.
1: I'm not saying there's loads and loads of leaks, but there's often you're working in a place that has a background radiation that is higher than you want to be exposed to. But that's the nature of a nuclear reactor. Um, But the length of time you spend there should be commensurate with with the potential exposure level. And it's knowing that flux that gives you an idea of right. You've had your three minutes or you've had your three hours. Now you can't come into this area again for another two weeks or for another week. Not You've had five times what you should have.
0: And I'm guessing you saved lives or certainly saved people's health, which much as I love the CEGB, actually I don't, that they, you know, it's good that you saved them 1% of their gross product. But the fact that you were saving people's lives and, and helping their health is also a really essential part of what you did.
1: Absolutely. In fact, that's the more important part than than the money side of things. You know, justification for funding is often an economic justification. It's not or an emotional justification, whereas most of the time it should be. I mean, it's um, a little bit like our activities towards abating climate change. You know, you can go for funding for, for various projects tech or otherwise based and they always ask the funders always ask what's our return on investment i said well it's a greener cleaner planet you know well that no how much money is it going to make us john and it's soul destroying so yeah you're absolutely right is that Let, let's let's help save people or do
0: something i want to come back to how you got from there to being at machine intelligence carriage but before that I live in a world where everybody is aware that we're in the middle of a multipolar multi systemic crisis and that everything needs to change and that one of the things that needs to change is the profit motive. I'm hearing you and thinking you you live in a world where the profit motive is still god. Is that the case?
1: Every startup I talk to wants to make that is their main driver most of the time. Right. I mean the, in the, in the tech world, all we ever hear about are tech bros creating a new, new crypto token. I call it crypto shit because I think they really are bad for everybody and they really need to be got rid of. But, yeah, um, money is the old god still. Yeah, there's m- more money awash in the city of London for tech investment than there's ever been. Okay. And there are companies now, you know, 10 years ago, the idea of a unicorn company was out of this world. Now, everyone's trying to be. What's a unicorn? A unicorn company is one that's valued before they've even made money, before oftentimes they've even got going properly. They're, and um, they're valued at a billion pounds or billion dollars or more. Wow.
0: Okay.
1: Do you, know, you imagine being a three-year-old company that suddenly has a valuation of a billion dollars? or more mostly on the fact that they've had huge investment so you get these young startup companies what five ten people who suddenly get 20 million pounds investment and then they get 200 million pounds investment and then on the back of virtually nothing they um they're suddenly valued because of that investment at a billion pounds or more. Right. Then they become very attractive. Then you go for your IPO, your initial public offering, and and lots of people make lots of money, even though they might not have done anything. They might have actually done something really bad, but we just don't know.
0: It's black orchids all over again, isn't it? Only only they've got the potential to destroy the planet in ways that black orchids probably didn't have. Let's they weren't like black tulips. Sorry, black tulips. It's that it's that. Everybody says something is worth something, therefore it must be worth something, which isn't necessarily the case. I last thing I heard, everybody wanted to go from startup to acquisition by Google or Amazon or Facebook or Apple, because then you can just stop working and the bigger companies bought you up. Let's let's leave that for a moment. Go back to you're working for Cedb. You've created a, a real time dosimeter, which sounds absolutely amazing. I remember when I was a vet, you know, we used to have the little bits of film on the badges and all the time we, we were only being exposed to x-rays but even so you'd come back and somebody go right you're not going in the radiology room again for the next six months sorry so give us a very edited highlight of how you hopped from there to machine intelligence
1: a couple of things in between doing that and being headhunted by De Beers Diamonds and I was headhunted to go and basically 28 years old, given five million quid, three people to work with in a big lab and told, you know, John, go play. Wow. And what was I playing with? I was playing with the notion that we could create, develop, invent a technology that would make man-made diamond that was indistinguishable from natural diamond in a more easy fashion than the high pressure technology that had been developed back in the mid 1950s. Um, that is still used to create pretty much 80% of the world's diamond, which is man-made. It's synthetic and it's used for industrial uses. Yeah. Having a manufacturing process, you can create identical sustainable um, materials. And the the same is true for diamond. Anyway, um, I was particularly successful. I created um, the technology, invented the technology to make lab grown diamonds. Uh, also called synthetic diamonds, but because they've been synthesized, but they're still carbon, they're still diamond. And I did all sorts of wacky stuff, and it was because I was given the opportunity. To-
0: so, so, did you make the coin ore? Could you make the coin ore? I mean, obviously someone has to cut it, but you could have created a synthetic coin ore. Doesn't that crash the ver- the w- value of diamonds somewhat?
1: No, you see, this is the thing. You, in theory, you could make the cohen ore, but I, d- I don't think anyone would really want to because it wouldn't had the same value. And part of the purpose of this project was to show just how low cost could you make these things and just how high quality. And now you can see Pandora. All of the diamonds that they use are lab-grown diamonds. And there's a really good... The best reason is the reason why I actually started doing the project, which wasn't known to debaters until I left. And I finally, a few years after I left, actually told them, or they got to know. Um, they wanted to do it to protect their market. Yeah, the, the diamond market is huge, it's created, it's marketed, every diamond is unique. 86 million carats a year of natural diamond are mined and sold. It's a huge number, so they're, they're not that rare. I mean, you're not talking in terms of tens of thousands, you're talking about millions, and you're talking about, over the last hundred years, tens, hundreds of millions of, of, of carats of diamond, effectively have been um, mined and produced huge huge number um and that long will that continue all the time we have mined diamonds but i have a problem with mined diamonds i mean the kimberley diamond mine uh was the only man-made structure visible from space and when i was a kid I, I saw pictures of this, and I saw pictures of children in Angola and other places, open cast mining, and I just thought, you know, everyone's saying you can see the Great Wall of China. You can't see the Great Wall of China from space. You have to have quite a high-resolution telescope to do that, even from the space station. What people were seeing was the Yangtze River, much, much bigger, and they thought, ah, that must be the Great Wall, you know, gee, what a Great Wall and all that. So I just thought it's just obscene to have a diamond mine that big. And that was one of many. You know, there were dozens of these things, enormous craters on the earth. They use em- enormous amounts of land that could be used for re- regenerative agriculture. They use a huge number of people. Great that we employ a huge number of people, but they could be retrained in, in agriculture, regenerative agriculture, something. They're all in places where that would be an ideal technology to implement. Use huge amounts of water. Resources, should we say. And ethically, it's awful because the more there is this drive towards mining, there's illegal mining, there's artisan mining. There's lots of women's artisanal diamond mines all over Africa, you know, and um, they need to they need to be able to operate and not forced out of operation by these really big boys. But the key to lab grown diamond and the ethical bit is they're environmentally friendly. They can be created from renewable energy sources, electricity in, in particular. Most importantly, they're conflict-free. They're not blood diamonds. We can trace their provenance back to the very gases that they were made from. Uh, and we can actually produce a nice sort of table of outputs about just how ethical they actually are. Okay. And um, that's it's really important because mine diamonds, no matter what, finding the provenance of them is like finding the provenance of, of old artworks. I mean, it's all done on a basis of trust. And there are some industries where that trust is lost very easily, uh, particularly when you have large companies that uh, can be divisive about their marketing. Um, not saying that De Beers was like that. Actually, De Beers did phenomenal stuff. They sold all of their diamond industry interest to Botswana for nothing. And then they created Debswana that has actually made Botswana uh, a a country that can be self-sustaining, growing, economically good, has a a massive health service, great architecture. I mean, it's, it's amazing what the diamond industry and the mining industry did for South Africa, but it's time that changed. So I got into the diamond thing to grow this thing, to stop mining, to provide an alternative source that it might take 60 or 70 years to do, but it's the way to go. Good thing.
0: So I want to come back to your timeline, but I have two ancillary questions. First one is, I'm going to interview a a gentleman called Dr. Simon Mischel on the podcast uh, early next year, and he's a material flows specialist. So he sent me some YouTubes of him talking about material flows. And in one of them, he's with another gentleman who specializes in rare earth mining. And I was totally gutted by the videos of something simple like graphite, even not the rarest of earth in China, and and, and the acreage, the, the thousands of acres of polluted land and polluted water. And I'm wondering, are they now visible from space, or is the horror, it was truly the ultimate dystopian landscape that I saw in those videos. Is the De Beer or, or not necessarily De Beers but the mining industry worse than that or is it just that other mining industries have risen up in the last couple of decades since Rare Earths became so useful? Um,
1: the whole problem with mining is sheer scale and it's, it is driven by the sheer scale of our consumerism. So, you know, electric cars, for example, need batteries. Battery technology progressed a fair bit, but it's still a bit barbaric in many ways. It's still a bit basic. Um, We're still using, extracting all sorts of materials to make batteries. As we offer everything, everything comes from some sort of extraction, whether it be water, whether it be lithium, whether it be gold. You know, and it's all taken out as the, the individual material. It doesn't come ready-made. You know, I'm mining batteries. No, I'm mining the materials for batteries. And if you've got 10 different materials, you've got 10 different mines, probably in 10 different places. And they've all got to be brought together. So there's the massive environmental impact, both of the mining and the sheer scale of it. You know, I, I maintain one of my life's purposes is to help people understand scale understand you know what it what it means what a million means what a billion means i mean i maintain that people in the uk didn't know what a million was until the lottery came along um they, re- they really hadn't heard it very much other than from government they certainly hadn't heard about it as individuals and people you know 30 odd years ago whenever whenever it was in fact i i first understood a million when i was about eight nine years old i was at the school and one of our new classmates was a guy from Sheffield um, whose family had moved down from Sheffield after his dad had a, a foundry accident, lost both his legs in a foundry accident. And he got one of the UK's largest payouts at the time, which was more than a million pounds. Now, no one believed him in the class, this class of junior school kids who all said, no, you can't, it wouldn't fit in your house. They didn't understand about banks. You know, it didn't really we didn't talk about money like that at home or anything else. So it wouldn't fit in your house. It's, it's, you know, it's not in the house. But yes, more than a million pounds. But no one would believe him. So that it, it was a great source of disturbance in the classroom. So my teacher, Mr. Burke, said, "Look, here's a five-pound note," and he got a micrometer out and he showed us how to use a micrometer to measure its thickness, and measure its length, and measure its its width. And calculate its volume, and then, what's the volume of a million pounds of five pound notes? Uh, Yeah, five pound note because, you know, not many people carried around ten pound notes, certainly to carry around guineas or anything else. Anyway, we calculated it was about a a meter cubed, a yard cube. There,
0: right? It would fit in the house.
1: So, yeah, but that gave us a first idea of what a million pounds was like. And now you can put a million million pounds into a holdall with 50-pound notes. I mean, it's comparatively easy. And you can put it into your socks with 500-euro notes, you know, that that sort of thing. And that's why they had to get rid of them. So understanding the scale of things. When people say, oh, we want 100,000 toothbrushes per day to be manufactured, well, mobile phones, here's a better one. Mobile phones, factories might knock out 100,000 to a million phones a day. Gosh. Just imagine how many that is every second. Or Coke bottles yeah. or so Coke cans, 20,000 per minute going around on a slow conveyor.
0: And then where do they all go?
1: And, that, and so, yeah, when you're mining 100 different elements for 100 different uses, or you're mining... A thousand barrels of oil a minute from somewhere. It, understanding what that means is is really very important. So yeah, the mining industry generally is is bad news for the planet, good news for us, and we can't just stop it. There's too much, and it's too interconnected. You know it's like I was saying. You got ten components to really. That's it. 10 degrees of separation on your complex system, just for that one item.
0: So we're definitely still going to come back to your timeline. But we're now into accidental gods territory of we're in our multipolar crisis. Exactly as you're saying, everything is very big. Nobody is going to stop using computers tomorrow so that the assembly lines can stop. Do you have a personal vision, nothing to do with your employment by the government, of First of all, how long do you think we've got before we hit m- material flow crises? That's Simon Michaud's thing. And, and he, I have to say, things not very long for crucial material flows. And then before we hit a more critical planetary boundary d- crisis that slows down our consumption, whether we like it or not. So that's the first thing. Do you have a sense of time scales? And then within the time scale that, that you inhabit, do you have a sense of any way that we could begin to shift away from the destructive habits that we've got into? I
1: think for me, part of the issue and my vision is actually to get people to understand that we're addicted to electricity. We burn more fossil fuel than we ever have before. We're using all our renewable energy sources not to offset our fossil fuel use, but to supplement it so that we can do stupid things like mine cryptocurrency, use a huge amount of electricity. It doesn't democratize money. It doesn't do anything any good except for the six or seven major shareholders in the world who are already exceptionally, obscenely wealthy to make more money. To giant Ponzi schemes, you know, that addiction to electricity is getting worse. The more we call to burn less fossil fuels or to use less materials, extractive materials, the more we're doing it. So we're we're actually burning more fossil fuels than ever before. We're creating more electricity than ever before. And the way that we're creating most of our electricity, um, we might be producing as a world, you know, 10, 15, 20% of renewables uh, renewable energy electricity but the other lot is from burning you know wood pellets how environmentally destructive is that and just because it's biofuel or biomass doesn't make it any more environmentally friendly in fact it's less environmentally friendly in many many respects uh, what well, the major thing that has changed we're not manufacturing very much more in fact there's been a manufacturing downturn globally because consumerism has gone down because of Economic problems, but we're making more electricity to do more what? Computing. We're using the internet more. Uh, we're creating tons of data, and data is the new plastic, right? It is not the new oil. That's my mantra. It has been for the last fifteen years. Is that, that me- single-use data is worse than single-use plastic? You know because you can't recycle data. You can reuse it sometimes. Most of it isn't reused. Most of it's created. The Instagram pictures that I take, they're, they're stored you know, in five or six servers all around the world, whether I like it or not. It's never de- depleted. It, I create these digital things. and um, Whereas we can turn analog signals, voltages, into digital effects, ones and zeros maybe, uh, we can't take those ones and zeros and turn them back into voltage. We can't turn them back into electricity. It's a one-way street. It's a sort of diode-like behavior. So getting people to understand that we all, no one can do everything, but everyone has to do something. And this crass argument that, oh, it's it's down to the individual to reduce their carbon footprint. Well, yeah, it is in, in small part, but it's, it's down to all of us to do that. And the whole carbon footprint anathema is a bit weird. But we all need to be educated. and My vision is that everyone understands that switching a light off when you leave the room or turning the heating down by one degree might not seem like very much. But when you've got a billion people doing that, you've suddenly got the the enormity of use reduced by a bit. And if we can do that year on year for the next 10 years, we will reduce our overall consumption without even knowing it by a substantial amount and that will help us achieve many of the uh, the, the goals or move towards achieving many of the goals uh, that we're trying to achieve. But asking people to say, just stop oil or just stop doing something is impossible. It, it Everything is so interconnected. Our lives are interconnected, but our consumption is interconnected as well. We can't just stop doing stuff. So, vision, understand the scale of stuff and then understanding that you don't have to m- reduce that whole scale yourself, but we all have to collect together.
0: Brilliant. This feels like we're into territory where I I can have an opinion. I might know something about it. So, first of all, we still, we're still we working on a timescale of 10 years, perhaps, I think. I heard you, but let's go back to that. There's a thing called Jevon's paradox, which is basically that it, he pointed out that if you reduce the cost and of of an item, whatever that item is, it doesn't, and make it easier to get hold of. It doesn't make people use it less; they just use more to fill the gap. I hear you on if everybody turns off the lights, turns the heating down by one. But quite quickly, we reached the kind of bare minimum that we did with water this summer, so we could stop taking showers, have sponge baths. Probably too much personal information, but we can down to a minimum. But there comes a point where there's our water consumption is is what's needed to keep the animals alive and keep us alive, and and there is no more left to cut. And yet, if somebody switched off the water, we would end up using less, even if we died. So it seems to me that either we're going to hit planetary boundaries and we're going to be forced to stop consuming, using oil, whatever else, or we have to find ways that don't take us down the Jevons paradox route, but take us to something else that isn't based on massive material consumption and everybody wanting to chase profits. And And you seem to be right at the leading edge of, of this question. And, and I ask everybody what their vision is, and everybody gets a bit lost because it's really hard. We do live in a pl- planet where it's easier to imagine the total extinction of humanity than it is to imagine an end to predatory capitalism. But I wonder, have you got an image of what the world looks like if we manage to reduce everything to a point where we're not destroying the biosphere?
1: Yes, I do. Yeah, um, as a kid, I heard Carl Sagan speak and he said, we're just a, basically we're just a spaceship traveling through the universe. You know, we're a closed system. So all the time we're using something, it's not disappearing. It's cha- changing its form. And my vision for for how we might slow that degradation of the planet down and ourselves down is is like I say we we don't have to remove everything a hundred percent because we're not doing that we're just shifting where it is. I mean the amount of water there is on the planet is, is the same as this week as it was last week plus or minus a bit. You know it's a it's a closed system. And we have a variety of technologies, and not saying that technology is a solution by any means, but actually if we reframe our imagination to think, okay, so I've got these lithium batteries, rather than mining it, I'm gonna repurpose it or I'm going to recycle it, or I'm going to we focus far too much on extracting, converting, using, and discarding. Mm. So I was brought up in that generation where My dad would repair the twin tub washing machine 15, 20 times over its 20 odd year existence. You know, we would have bought it secondhand and he would have repaired it and patched it up until it can no longer be repaired. It is absolutely impossible and replacing components which were going to be cost ineffective and actually you just have to repair it again. So he would then say, right, we've got to buy a new washing machine this one's done its time. You know, you amortise its cost and the effort put into it over it, and it's pennies per day. Um, but he would still keep that twin tub washing machine in the garage, because those bits might come useful. Or i go down to the scrap merchant and we'd take various bits down and exchange that scrap metal for money so it could be reused and reprocessed. Just like our aluminium foil caps or milk bottles we used to collect for charity for school, or newspapers and cardboard and everything else. Really into that let's refurbish let's replenish let's have a maintenance schedule to maintain our technology even if it is really bad then we move on to my generation which you know I can repair our washing machine I have done uh, I, I expect if it doesn't last seven to ten years then you know I complain bitterly but I will repair it whenever it needs to be repaired and, and can do that but I will go more quickly towards the um, the re- rather than the the refurbishment aspect, because I can. And because, actually, life can be a little bit too fraught when you've got three kids under the age of 11, and, you know, one of whom's a baby, and you have to wash nappies every day. And it really used to get me down. So I will then, after 7 to 10 years, amortise how much this value I've got out of this washing machine, and then I'll buy a new one. But I'll have the other one safely disposed of you know and uh, it's sent off to the great washing machine uh graveyard in wales and um there it will be stripped down or it'll just be stored for years and years maybe the, it'll be stripped down the metals will all be reused um or waiting for a time when a technology can can re re and now we're on the current generation where uh my phone screen is 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 cracked uh i need a new phone or I need to get it refurbished, which is, which is great, or I want the latest of this. So after six months or a year, even though it's still working, it gets put in a drawer or maybe sent to somewhere else. So we've we, we progressed all along this line further and further away from the, the real activity that we want in order to be able to sustain, at least sustain, and hopefully better maintain the planet.
0: Okay, so time is flowing past. Thank you for that. It's tremendously encouraging. I'd like to shift towards the leading edge of where tech is taking us, because yes, it is taking us to people wanting the latest iPhone rather than the one that they bought six months ago. But with any luck, as we change people's views, that will change. But it seems to me that you are working in the edge of technologies that the rest of us don't know exist, that presumably are not just there to extract value from from people on the planet, but at least some of which are explicitly designed to help us make a transition to a more regenerative future. And I wonder if you could introduce us to some of those and let us know how we can help them along.
1: Yes, it's a fascinating sort of journey. So if we come back to the sort of ethics side, for nearly a decade, I worked in this area called synthetic biology, engineering biology. I I say it's the engineering of biology to do useful things and make useful stuff, to heal us, feed us, fuel us, and most imperatively, to sustain us, sustain life on Earth. And it it is engineering or biology to do good stuff. It is to create more resilient um, organisms. It is to use bacteria to eat plastic, maybe, or or convert plastic into energy, all all of these sorts of things that you you read in, uh, you know, Ursula Le Guin books and Margaret Atwood books, and most people have a dystopian outlook on it. Actually, it can be really, really useful. Of course, that's fraught with ethical problems, but it is one of those technologies that really can help maintain a lot of the ecosystems that we've got and actually be generative for them. And to use some of the things we've uh, we've developed, some of the technology around this biotechnology, to create some of the goods that we use all the time that we we at the moment get from extractive technologies, um, but really should be um, creating regenerative technologies. Let's let's put, let's put it that way. And so, yeah, my my sort of my journey in the ethics world and the tech world has gone all the way through from sort of power generation, electricity generation, through to materials generation with the man-made diamond, through to biological materials generation with engineering biology. And one of the key features of engineering biology is the fact that we can model and simulate and hopefully predict how we're going to create new materials, drugs, for example, um, or recreate materials that um, exist in nature, but we don't want to scavenge from the planet. And there's all sorts of protection mechanisms put in around that scavenging now, but um, hey, it still happens. We still farm, you know, we, we still grow potatoes. Um, you'll see that, that one other area that I've been Associated with has been uh, lab grown meat, like lab grown diamonds, you know, and, uh, and various other lab grown things. Lab grown meat is potentially a really good uh, part solution for the generation of greenhouse gases by uh, agriculture, in particular livestock, poultry, and aquaculture. You know, if we can make these things more environmentally efficiently and friendly, then
0: we're looking now very explicitly at the ethics, and you said right at the start that you wanted to help startups to start with an ethical base. How do you reach agreement across the board between you and any hypothetical startup as to what is ethical? What what are our parameters? Because everybody has a different framing of the world, and, and let's say the ethics of an indigenous tribe in the middle of the Amazon might very well be different to the ethics of the tech bros in California. How do you find common, commonality that is still
1: useful? Issue to face is all done through discussion and everyone's ethics is different. But I think the universal approach to ethics must be, you know, does is this is this needed? Is this going to do good in the world uh, or is it going to do nothing? Is it going to use more resources than than it should do? Um, is it going to cause harm? Is it going to uh, impinge on someone else's human rights in some way, shape or form? Because uh, the, the Bill of Human Rights is generally accepted around the um, world. There are some you know, aberrations, shall we say? And there's certainly a lot of people who stretch it uh, a lot further than it should be. But in general... If we when you talk about the you know, seven odd billion people on the planet, I think nearly everyone would agree the Bill of Human Rights is in most mostly right for them. And so all our ethical thinking should really be based around our understanding of what human rights are and that and and what freedom of speech is and how we have to acknowledge or, well I believe we have to acknowledge that if we're going to enable freedom of speech, there's freedom of speech for everyone, even if we don't like it. Um, we might not like what they're saying, but we should love the fact that they can say it. Now, that gets stretched to a point where if they're starting to say things or do things that stretch that human rights um, belief, then we all have to say that this is outside of our basic Venn diagram, with, which is enclosed by the Bill of Human Rights. And what we generally accept is good is good for mankind and more than humankind as well. You know, we, we mustn't ignore that. Uh, it's very very important because we we anthropomorphise everything, but uh, that takes away the rights of buildings to not be degraded by acid rain. You know, who knows uh, the rights of animals to have clean air as much as we have?
0: So, how do you plan forward? Because it seems to me that second order impacts are really hard to predict. If we'd gone back fifteen years and talked to the developers of Twitter. And said to them, at some point in the future, a bloke who's got enough money to send his own private rocket to the moon is going to take it over and tweak the algorithms such that the free speech of a certain sector of the community will be amplified and the rest may end up finding themselves diminished. And nobody knows what that will do to the future of democracy. Or even if we were to say that Twitter will become one of the tools through which trust will be undermined to the extent that democracy is under threat. That would have been incredibly hard to predict when social media hadn't happened and we hadn't seen that it brings out the worst in everybody. How, how does anybody ever get anything moving off the launch pad without paralyzing themselves with what might go wrong?
1: Well, t- take the example of startups working in tech. Um, suppose we were talking to the startup that created Twitter all those years ago. And we wanted to think, you know, what's this going to be? We have imagined already the name Twitter and we put a whole narrative around it. It's wonderful. We're using our imaginations all the time. It's what we're imagining that is off the fault. uh, and, um, that's my view is often perhaps it's often at fault. We're always imagining bad um, or we're imagining a false good. And we're creating, oh, we need to do this because it's going to help all these people. We need cryptocurrency because people don't have access to cash money and that's going to disappear soon. Uh, and everyone wants the, you know, the, the the ownership of their own data. A lot of these are false Entirely false imaginations put together into a narrative to to help us To accept the fact that actually what we really want is something very different So we've gone into the startup Twitter. So they've from the off. They've imagined that this system can occur Then they've gone through the activities to create the code that enables them to do what they think should be doing and every step of the game What we should be doing is helping that company to What are the consequences of doing this to me, to my company, to society, to other people's society and other languages? So I I think although it's not possible to predict, it is possible to imagine the outcomes. And by imagining those, you can imagine ways of not getting there or ways of getting there quicker you know, in the event of good things. And that's what really some sort of ethical introspection needs. It needs people to sit down and imagine. So I take people through on the tech side um, talking about things like um, algorithmic bias. I say, well, the algorithm itself isn't biased. The bias is actually on how it selects data, and the data might be biased as well. So you've got bias times bias when it comes, comes down to that. But how do you how do you detect that? So I say, well, imagine you are data, right? You're, you're a piece of data. Yeah, so you're a PDF image or a JPEG image of yourself. Imagine what happens to you as you go through that algorithm, so go through the journey of being the data and how it flows through that algorithm. Uh, line by line, what's happening to me? And then you can see, ah, I've been excluded. Why have I been excluded? What is it about this algorithm that selected a one, not a zero? You know, sort of thing. This bit of code. What, what is it about the algorithm that has done this? And how can I understand that better so that I can inform the data supplier or the data set that it needs to be selected differently? Or I can inform the, the, the programmer how I can select differently. You see what I mean? It's it's that sort of understanding. Rather than just writing code, it's it's what is the code actually doing? uh, And what does the data actually mean? What does it actually contain?
0: But is it not possible to have algorithmic shifts such that you're not promoting the people who are going for outrage and the dopamine hits? I, I think Audrey Tang in Taiwan is doing stuff with a local to Taiwan social medium that enhances cooperation and that, that we could that you wouldn't have to necessarily be policing content but you're policing the response to the content at an algorithmic level yes no
1: yeah um i think it comes down to scale but it also comes down to culture as well i mean when you take taiwan and you take what Auditank's tanks doing um it's within a cultural mix where the bounds are known the boundaries are known and the detectability and discovery of the information is is limited to, to that language and to those people in, a, in a, almost a closed environment. The, the problem for me arises is that the world isn't borderless. It'd be a much better place if it were. But as soon as you cross borders, you, you, you cross cultural boundaries, cultural norms, different taboos. Um, what is talked about in one country is considered anti-Semitic in another. Um, so do you include that entire country or most of the people in that country, especially if they've been misinformed? You know, Do you then exclude them? Is that, this is the whole policing bit, is that you can't get an algorithm to police something that it, hasn't been able to detect for a long period of time and learn from. Machine learning, remember, is human.
0: And yet we have algorithms that are very effectively and demonstrably creating division, creating polarisation, throwing people into tribes that to which they cleave more strongly than they did before. Is it really not possible to create algorithms that create more cohesion
1: and cooperation? I think... Probably it is possible, but maybe that shouldn't be the goal. Maybe the goal should be to define those algorithms that are detecting words in sentences and saying, no, in our glossary, this word, and this often happens, "Um, this word is something that's inflammatory to these people. Therefore, we need to look at this again and, and look to see how the structure of those words is actually doing something bad or is, is fairly innocuous. So th- there's a lot of learning involved in there. We've ho- all heard about some of the instances where people have been excluded on the basis of saying something that is totally innocuous. It just happens that that same sentence has appeared in part of a larger paragraph somewhere else from someone who's produced something inflammatory or derisory or other or otherwise. So again, it comes down to the scale of this. You have to remember, you know, a computer is typically operating on these platforms about a hundred times, thousand times faster than the human brain. We've got eighty-six billion neurons in our brain operating and firing to produce a thousand thoughts a second, maybe one thought a second for some people. You know, who who knows? Inordinate amount of data to search through. So this detectability is, is incredibly limited. And if your, all your algorithms are pointed towards detecting this mass of information embedded as needles in needles of a haystack of needles you start to come across a a brick wall where you just can't find it quickly enough or enough of it and respond quickly enough.
0: Okay, so in my own iterative loops, which I suspect are quite slow, we have single-use data is as dangerous as single-use plastic. I I still have an image of the Pacific jar of plastic, which is four times the size of Texas and and can be many metres deep. And I think... I'm struggling to imagine data being that dangerous, but it doesn't go away. It's held. The CIA has got several terabytes for every person on the planet. And yet, Twitter, Facebook, social media, I hadn't intended to take this podcast towards social media, but it is proving really interesting. It seems to me that there's the, you said a few words in a sentence and Twitter doesn't like it and now it's banned you for life and and that's very sad. But on the other hand, you could have been the ex-president of the United States trying to incite revolution and got banned from life. And that's, you know, frankly, quite happy with that. You don't get to call fire in a crowded theater when there isn't a fire. But it seems my understanding is that the algorithms, particularly in Facebook, Twitter, possibly TikTok, which I don't go near so I don't really understand it, that cause posts to be liked and reliked depending on The number of responses that they get. And that the most inflammatory posts tend to arise from a relatively small number of accounts who are very, very good at posting very inflammatory posts, to the extent that the political parties in the US discovered that if they didn't produce posts that were inflammatory and which fed into their own tribe's side of, you need to crush the other side really badly or we're not getting our dopamine hits, then they didn't get any traction. So you have an algorithmic setup that promotes division regardless of the language and based on the number of responses that it gets, which seems to me to be driven by the venture capital nature of funding and the fact that you have to. As you said, 20% of us could leave, but they're still dragging in more people because they have to not just continue to make a profit, they have to make an increasing profit profit every year to keep the venture capitalists happy. Presumably at some point they reach saturation and then they can't grow anymore, but then they have to create more division or change Instagram so that it becomes more of an income stream. Are you seeing anywhere at the edge of tech that you're working at people trying to create social media that we could all shift to, that isn't algorithmically set up to promote hate between various groups on a planet that needs us all to pull together to cre- to help solve the multisystemic pr- crisis
1: there are there are people producing new platforms like web3 for example uh, they have their but then again it's a question of scale and we all have to do this together it's it's i th- i believe that we can all globally imagine a better future not a worse future and we can imagine ways of getting there not going to be easy they're not all going to work most of them probably won't work some of those ways are things like regenerative anything we need to learn to stop innovating in my view and start maintaining the innovation we've got and get getting rid of some of the rubbish stuff you know some of the things that are purely generative and pointless uh, getting rid of some of the data generation or making it more efficient making our energy use far 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 more ele- uh, uh, efficient you know low energy use electronics for computing for example could save 30 percent of the world's electricity generation 30 percent that would be an instant hit on the uh the need to burn fossil fuels you know, so we need to And there are people working on those things they're very specific and all of them to a t say well look On our own, we're not going to be able to do this to get to less than 1.5 degrees. We have too many borders, too many boundaries, and not enough collaboration on a global scale.
0: Yes. Uh, This is a whole new podcast. I can feel as We're already so far over time, John. I don't know what we're going to cut to fit this in, because I think the idea of a borderless world government is a really interesting one but also how do you stop it being corrupted and whose value sets do you
1: give it that's a whole it, different a, set of questions it's a utopian dream i've i've got a little project going on that i've had going on for a long time that i've, I've hardly progressed with because it's not a hundred percent easy project and it's called a history of the future in seven words and the seven words include things like borderless and regenerative right and right. other things around what we might consider imagining doing and how it might consider changing the world. But when you start to dig into it, it starts to become a very, very knotty problem.
0: We have to stop there. I can feel this is going on and on. We will definitely need to come back for part two sometime in the new year because I'm booked oh. up until then. Um, and in the meantime, I I hope all of your exciting, disruptive, leading-edge tech companies actually do make breakthroughs that lead us into the flourishing future that has to be possible. Thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast.
1: You're welcome. It's been great fun.
0: And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to John and thanks to Caro for wrestling with sound and the fact that the entire system shut down on me towards the end and we had to finish it on Zoom. So if you think the sound was slightly different, that's why. But thanks to John for engaging, for being so aware on so many levels of all that's happening, and for holding out hope. We will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, enormous thanks to Caro for all of the extraordinary sound production and for the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith for booking the holiday, designing the website, holding all of the conversations that keep us moving. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts And thank you to you for continuing to listen. We really appreciate the fact that you are out there. And if you know of anybody else who wants to wrestle with the big technical problems of our time, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.